Well, this morning is the ninth installment of looking at the Christian story, uh, the story of redemption, as we've called it, as we are walking through the the whole arc of the narrative of Scripture. And so today we're going to be in John 3. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to that passage. And uh, really, I don't know if you've noticed, so, you know, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that's the storyline of Scripture. Uh, And I don't know if you've noticed that uh, David Arms, as he painted this, the two tags at the beginning and end is life and life. And so there's life, loss, love, and then life. So, so this story is one of life, right? That begins with life and that ends with life, but in the middle we have an intense sense of loss, as that second panel talks about. The tension starts in the book of Genesis, where humankind says, I am going to God, in my own heart at least, take you out of the center of the universe and put myself squarely there. I'm going to de-God God. And what that did is it separated all of humanity from the life giver himself. And what happens when you separate yourself from the life giver? Well, logically, you would assume death. Death entered into the picture, but God did not wipe out the rebels. In fact, he put a plan in place to rescue many. And last week, we saw a major shift in this story. The shadows that we have seen of this redemptive plan throughout the whole Old Testament, uh, we finally were reintroduced, if you will, through Ron's preaching to uh, this form of Jesus who has been casting that shadow. And we finally go, ah, this is it. God incarnate. God put on skin who has come to really set this rescue mission more uh, fully in motion. Well, this week, uh, I was fascinated by a news story that hit about a man named Michael Nepinski. Michael Nepinski, the first line said, came back from the dead. He came back from the dead. You see, a little over a week ago, he went hiking uh, on Mount Rainier, which is a a big-time mountain out in Washington State, and he had gotten lost in sub-freezing temperatures, and eventually, Navy crews found him. He was unconscious. They rushed him to the emergency room there in Washington State. And once he got there, his heart actually stopped beating. And it stopped beating for 45 minutes. You see, the moment his heart stopped beating, they decided to put him on something called an ECMO. Uh, And what an ECMO stands for is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Write that down. It's a very important uh, term. But, but basically, it's a heart and lung machine. It's a, it's a bypass machine where uh, the heart is stopped, and they took his blood and ran it through a machine and oxygenated it and pumped it back through his body, keeping his body alive. And, and what, what happened is shortly thereafter, they started his heart, and everything got going again. And I watched an interview that he gave days after they brought him back from the dead, if you will. Well, friends, as we move into the storyline and as we're sitting in oftentimes where we can focus is the part of the narrative that is loss, we might feel like this whole story is on life support. This whole story needs a miracle, if you will. So think about it for a second. You know, sometimes we say, yeah, you know, sin's bad. This is, this is tough. That rebellion, yeah, that was, that was bad news. So when did the Eagles play this afternoon, right? Like that's oftentimes the depth to which we think about sin and the rebellion that happened in the garden. But, but let me just show you how desperate this story is. Here's what happens in Gen- after Genesis 3 and what we see 
especially throughout the whole Old Testament and New Testament. We see that, that all humankind, every man, woman, and child, needs to be reconciled to God. Because we have, as we said before, have rebelled against this king. We are now his enemy. We need to be reconciled with that relationship. But not only that, we actually need to be morally changed. Right? It's not just the relationship. If, if we're not morally changed, we're going to keep on rebelling against this king again and again. And the third thing is, is, is we need all the effects of sin in that rebellion somehow to be reversed and overcome. Right? So it's not just cleaning myself up or I need to be made morally good. It's not just reconciling us to God. It's the fact that, that our horizontal relationships are broken and need to be restored. It's the fact that the curse has impacted every blade of grass. It's the reason there's a pandemic in the world. Because the curse is far-reaching. It somehow needs to be reversed. Well, friends, how is this story that begins and ends with life, how is it the story of life? How does it get to that last panel? And maybe a deeper question is, is what is the type of life that we actually need? If those three things are true, what is the type of life that we need? Well, Jesus in John 3 today answers that question, at least what seems to be simply, although I wonder if we've stopped and thought about it very deeply. He says we need to be born again. There is a total and complete new life that needs to be brought about. And so we're going to look at three things. We're going to, uh, the outline today is looking out or being aware of what is usually expected, right? So look out for the expected. There's a warning that Jesus gives here. We're also to look for the unexpected. And then finally, to look at the unexpected. So look out for the expected, look for the unexpected, and then look at the unexpected. So John 3. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and follow along with me, verses 1 to 3. And this is John's Gospel, and this is uh, him telling a story about an interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. So here's verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us as we get going here this morning. Well, Lord, as we come before you, we're in need of a miracle. (laughs) We're in need of seeing how you bring life from death. And so, Father, would you use your word this morning? Would you speak through me, Holy Spirit? Would you make what sometimes is our hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh to be open to what you would have for us today? We love you and we need you desperately. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so the first thing Jesus says to Nicodemus and really points out in this story is to look out for the expected. There's a, there's a danger in just assuming uh, that new life is what we would typically expect. And so in order to get at that, let's look at the first character that's introduced here in a man named Nicodemus. 
We see that Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which means he was a very conservative Jewish man, uh, uh, really focused in on things like discipline, good deeds, orthodoxy, right, correct teaching. We later find out in the book of John that he was part of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Uh, Jesus later says, are you not a teacher of the Jews in verse 10? Which essentially is saying he's a big deal, right? He knows his word. He is a professor of divinity. We, at the end of the book, find out uh, that he uh, brings uh, probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars worth of burial spices to Jesus' tomb. And so he's wealthy. And so in a way, Nicodemus may have a lot of things together, at least as we think about someone who is religious, right? John makes an interesting point in verse 2. He says he comes by night. He comes by night. Now, there's a lot of debate. Why did he come by night? Some people would say he was afraid of being seen with Jesus or maybe embarrassed or ashamed. But but many commentators would say, actually, if you read up on Nicodemus going forward, he doesn't really care about what other people think. He was pretty brash about some of his comments. And so many commentators say, I don't think it was shame. I don't even think it was fear. Uh, Many would say it's John's use of the word light. If you ever study the book of John, there's a lot of interplay between light and darkness. And the things that are presented in light means uh, these are ones who have been born again, who have come to an understanding of who Jesus is. And the things that are presented as darkness equals lostness. And I would just say that the reason this is important to, to point out is because what I think John is doing is he's presenting Nicodemus, at least at this point in the story, as being lost. Even though he was really religious, he didn't get what God was really after. John is basically saying this isn't about religion. It's not about going to church. It's not simply knowing your Bible. John's essentially saying that, that Nicodemus represents lostness because he did not know Jesus. He didn't embrace Jesus for who he was. Now, there's a, uh, the next thing I want to look at in verse 3 is something called a non sequitur. You know what a non sequitur is. It's a phrase that seems to illogically follow the previous phrase. Do you see what he said? So Nicodemus is saying, you're a great teacher. Come from God. We know this because you're doing amazing things, and you can't do that unless God's with you. And then Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Think about that. Isn't that a weird response from Jesus? That's like saying, I think the eagles need a coaching change. And then the person you're talking to says, I like cats. Really? Like, that makes no sense. That, where does that make sense? Here's what Jesus is up to. Nicodemus is saying, hey, I'm a te- I know God's word. And, and Jesus, there's something different about you. Nobody could do the things you're doing unless God is with you, right, to do these miraculous things. Now, what he doesn't realize is Jesus is God. And if he doesn't realize Jesus is God, he's absolutely missed the whole picture. And Jesus is basically saying to him, hey, uh, unless something drastic happens to you, even though you think you see the kingdom at work, you're not a participant in it at all. Something miraculous needs to happen to you. Well, what's fascinating about that story about Michael Nepinski uh, is when it said he came back from the dead. And if you read just a couple of lines later, one of the doctors said, it wasn't a miracle, though. It was just science, right? He actually wasn't really brought back from the dead. Science kept him alive. And amazing, right? That's amazing that they could keep this man alive. You know, what Nicodemus is doing is he's kind of relying on the science of the day. 
He's saying, you know, this is how we've understood that we can kind of work our way and get to God. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't need the science of the thing. You actually need a total miracle. You need life from utter death. The pandemic has led me to run a lot through the cemetery behind my house, which at first felt really weird. Uh, Since has actually become uh, quite meaningful to me. Uh, It sobered me. And as I read passages like Ephesians 2 that says every single person apart from Christ is dead in their sins, I've realized, you know, what Jesus is talking about here isn't, isn't Mr. Nepinski who was kept alive and kind of was worked on back to life. No, it is equivalent to all of the bodies in those graves popping up at that point. That's how dire the situation is for every single person, man, woman, and child, spiritually. And that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He's saying what we need is new men and women, not new institutions. We need new lives, not new laws. We need new creatures, not new creeds. We need new people, not new displays of power. Boy, that's an important phrase for us today that D.A. Carson came up with here. He says, don't you get it, Nicodemus? If you don't see it in a transformational sense, then you actually don't see what's going on at all. And so let me just ask us a question real quick. If you think about somebody who is transformed, who God gets a hold of their lives and transforms them, what do you think about? What, what is that end result of that person? Is it that they become, they become more like a conservative or a liberal? Is it they become more on board with your favorite cause? Is it if they look or dress or sound a certain way? Well, let me challenge you with this, because I think what Jesus is saying is if you think you can get to a place of transformation without Jesus, without a miracle, it's actually not transformation at all. It's not new life. We need more. Here's the second point. Look for the unexpected. Pick back up with me in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into a mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. And so Jesus is basically telling him here, Nicodemus, look for the unexpected. Look for the unexpected to take place. Now Nicodemus in verse 4, he's like, can somebody go back into their mother's womb, right? I'm not sure Nicodemus is totally being snarky. I think he's being a little bit snarky. He's a smart man, right? So he knows that, that that's not possible. But, but I think he gets that Jesus is, is going after something different. And, and again, there are several who think that Nicodemus is saying, hey, you know, I'm being snarky, but, but Jesus, I think you're also talking about a person's life can have a totally new beginning. And I think that's actually out of the realm of possibilities as well. Keep going. In verse 5, Jesus says something kind of strange. 
Where is it? He says, truly, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So did Jesus just change the metaphor? Has, uh, is he like, okay, now we've got new birth and now we've got born in water of the Spirit. What's he getting at? Well, let me give you just a visual or t- a comparison. In verse 3, he says, unless one is born again. And then in verse 5, he says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. What Jesus is doing is he's actually speaking Nicodemus's language in order to help him understand what being born again actually means. And here's what I mean by using his language. Uh, Nicodemus, again, would get the Old Testament prophets. And the prophets, if you were paying attention over the course of this, uh, looking at the storyline of the Bible, we didn't spend any time really looking at the prophets because the prophets were really a bridge uh, between the kingdom being established and these covenants coming to bear uh, and, and it actually coming true in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so they acted as God's mouthpiece to warn God's people and say, you're abandoning the covenant. You're abandoning the covenant. But then also as God's people found themselves in captivity because of their rebellion, he's also holding a future hope before them. And that's what's happening in Ezekiel. And this is possibly the passage that Nicodemus was thinking about when Jesus said water and spirit. And this is a passage that we call uh, a prophecy looking forward to the new covenant. Here's what God promises through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, I will sprinkle clean water, there's water, on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, there's spirit, I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's saying, Nicodemus, this born-again thing is one Totally an act of God. God cleans us. God gives us that new heart. And two, it's this new covenant thing that you've been waiting for for so long. So here's the backbone of Scripture that we've talked about before, the layer cake of the covenants, how they build on one another. And even though it says Jeremiah and Matthew there for the new covenant, this Ezekiel 36 could also be put there. But what Nicodemus is going is going, "Uh uh-oh, is Jesus saying the new covenant is here? that this work is now beginning? Is that what this might mean? Verses 6 and 7, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born born of the Spirit is the Spirit. Uh, And and what Jesus is basically saying is, is Nicodemus, how can you take self-centered human beings and connect them to the life of God? And Jesus is clearly saying, you actually can't. Not at all. Dogs bark and cats meow, and you can't make a dog a cat. He's saying it is an act of God to actually transform people. Now, finally, he uses an interesting analogy to talk about God's power and and seeing it work, uh, where you see him talk about wind in verse 8. He says, The wind blows where it wishes that you may hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with anyone who is born of the Spirit. What's interesting is the word for wind and spirit is actually the same in the Greek. It's pneuma, right? And so what Jesus is saying is, is, yeah, God's power, you can't necessarily pin down where it's coming from. There's nobody on the other end going, right? And you don't know where it's going to go next. But God's power is at work, and it's here right now. And so here's a summary of looking for the unexpected. He's saying the unexpected is God taking spiritually dead people and bringing them to life and totally transforming their lives by an act of God and God alone. This is how Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Someone becoming a Christian isn't somebody cleaning themselves up. It is God raising them to new life and then Him making them look more and more like Himself. Becoming a total new creation. It is not something we can muster. It is not something we can create in our children, in our friends, in our parents. It is something to which we are totally dependent upon God for. Here's D.A. Carson says. He says, We ourselves must be transformed in measure right now and for the rest of our lives and ultimately with the kind of thorough transformation that leaves no hint of self-centeredness and death behind and leaves us swamped in sheer delight at the glory and the centrality of God. God was kind this week in a week where I was not, when I was feeling a bit down, to give me a picture of His wind blowing in our church. I got a call on Saturday night, and I was quite down on Saturday night, of a friend in our church who's been coming for several years, and they picked up the, or I picked up the phone, and they said, Anthony, I want you to know I am now a Christian. Another friend in the church just said, hey, we're locked down, it's a pandemic, I'm going to grab this person who I don't believe knows Jesus, and I'm going to spend time walking through God's Word with them to tell them about Jesus. And a little over a week ago, the coins dropped. And the friend said, you need to call Anthony and tell him that this has happened. And you know what my friend said on the phone? It was just fascinating. And and this is how God works. She said, Anthony, I used to not want to get up in the morning and get dressed and come to church. I I just drug myself out of bed. Or somebody actually pulled me along with them. But then they said, something's happened where I just can't wait to go and worship Jesus. And be with my brothers and sisters. My friends, it doesn't always work out that way. The Lord takes the rest of our lives to completely reorder our affections and our actions. But that is a picture of when rebirth happens. Something usually takes place. It's like, I can't explain why I don't love that anymore. Or how this got worked out of my life over the course of time. And that's right, you can't because it is this miracle of rebirth that God gives us. And his wind is still blowing in our midst. The pandemic did not shut God down. His power is still at work. And so maybe in the midst of depicting, and I've done it so much by saying 2020, 2020, 2020, you know, like how horrible it is. Instead of doing that, can we put our sails up and say, God, let us catch the wind that you are blowing. Take us to where your power is at work. God's people were in captivity in Isaiah. And in Ezekiel, and God is saying, I am doing something new. May we quit griping about the politics and fighting and hit our knees together and say, where are you blowing? Take us there. Finally, look at the unexpected. Look at the unexpected. Actually, read with me 3 to 15. Sorry, 3.11. To 15. Jesus says this Truly, truly, let me make sure I'm on the right place. All right. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. So Jesus is saying, I'm telling you the truth. You're not receiving what I'm telling you. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
No one has ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus calls himself a couple of times the Son of Man. This is a reference back to Daniel 7. Again, he's speaking Nicodemus' language. He's saying, you know this passage. You know Daniel 7 says, God is going to give all things to this Son of Man who will bring restoration. And Jesus is saying, I'm Him. I'm the Son of Man. And then He says something that, again, it feels like a non sequitur. He's like, just like Moses lifts up this serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but he's quoting from Numbers 21 where God's people were set free from slavery. They're in the wilderness. They start grumbling and complaining. God disciplines them by sending snakes to bite them. It is a crazy story. And then we read this. The people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would take a look at the bronze serpent and live. Friends, this is a crazy story. What is he getting at by this whole bronze serpent thing? Well, here's where we head, and this is again, D.A. Carson does a good job talking about this. He says, in Genesis 3, we see the pattern set for what's happening in Numbers 21. God's saying to his people, you make your own rules. You become your own God. You decide your own destiny. You don't trust God. You don't trust God for his sovereign care for him or depend on him for anything. You merely dictate to God, and if you can't have your own way, you whine and complain and rebel. And you know what this spells? Death, time and time again. What this story tells us in Numbers 21 is only God can provide a solution. These people in Numbers 21 need a miracle, and God provides a snake on a pole. That's bizarre. It's bizarre. We're just going to name that that's bizarre, right? God doesn't require ritual prayers. He doesn't require penance. He doesn't require beating themselves up, cleaning themselves up, shame, good works. God essentially says to them, when will you learn? You provide the sin. I provide the life. The only way out is my provision. Look at me, believe in me, and live. You know what Jesus is pointing to with the snake on the pole being lifted up? He's pointing to his cross. On his cross, Jesus provided the means by which we can have new birth. By his death, we get life. By his crucifixion on a pole, we gain eternal life. New birth is grounded in Jesus' death. This is what Jesus is saying. You and I receive benefit of this not by trying harder, not by being ultra-religious, but by having faith and believing in Jesus Christ. Last night we were driving home uh, from Lancaster County and uh, we were talking to our kids and I was getting a little angsty. 
uh, because I'm thinking, you know, over the course of time, this is probably going to be a topic that me and my now teenage children are going to disagree on. And this is an area I really want to fix in them. And I was thinking about this passage and I thought, Anthony, (laughs) yeah, okay, my job as a parent, there is certain discipline and whatnot that we hold out for our kids. But when you get teenage kids, and I can't even speak to beyond this, but you begin to go, yeah, I can't change their hearts. And in that moment, I just said, the best I can do is help them look on Jesus, is to help him see Jesus. And so we sat there and talked about Jesus and the woman at the well and how he interacted with her there and, and, and just a different facet of him there. And, and I believe my kids know Jesus. I do. But I also believe that Jesus is the one who has to bring new life continually in their lives, just as he does in mine, just as he does in someone who does not know the person and work of Jesus Christ. And friends, all of that story about Nicodemus is what leads up to the verse that you were probably expecting me to read it first. The very next verse is, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. You know what I think happened to Nicodemus by the end of this? He saw that it's not just life support that he needs. He needs a new heart. And I can't comment as to whether or not Nicodemus is present with God in heaven, but after Jesus was killed, you know what happened? Nicodemus, an enemy of Jesus by this point, at least the Jewish people were, he was the one who showed up with a box full of burial herbs and spices and, and, and basically like of great expense to him, thousands if not tens of thousands of dollars to offer to this king. Something happened to Nicodemus. I tend to think he finally got the fact that he needed new life, and I think he knew Jesus was the one who had it. May that draw our hearts towards him as we move through this story where we are so desperately in need of new life. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, I pray for the person who is going, yeah, I think I do need new life. I'm not sure what that looks like. And and Lord, I pray that they will hear the message that, that Jesus says to Nicodemus, where he basically says, look and believe on me and live. Believe that I am the one who saves you from your rebellion. Believe I am the one and only one who will grant you new life. And Lord, I pray that there is someone else like my sister now and friend, who might call us this week and say, you know what? I have new life. It's that simple. Would you make that possible? And Lord, for those of us who have forgotten that your wind is blowing, that this pandemic has not stopped your power and new birth from being at work, would you help us once again raise the sails and be expectant of you? And Lord, no matter if a shutdown comes or whatever have you, Lord, make us continually active in the lives of one another and in our neighbor to continue to say, God's up to something new. Where are you up to it? And what are you up to? Make us curious to the movement of your power. And God, I want to finally just pray for all my brothers and sisters who are watching or here. Lord, this is a tough Thanksgiving. There is a lot of grief. There is grief in my own life. There is sadness from not seeing family, from um, not being able to grieve with people even this week in, in physical presence. 
Lord, would you draw near to us? Would you give us your hope? Would you tune our eyes and our ears and most importantly our hearts to the fact that, that you, in you we have that living hope? God, draw near to the ones who are grieving this holiday season because of loss of loved ones, because of loss of opportunity to be near loved ones. And Lord, would you make our hearts truly thankful, truly thankful with all the trappings stripped away this year of thanksgiving for many of us. Would you show us what it means to be truly thankful for what you have provided for us? Yes, even in the wilderness, yes, maybe it's not turkey, maybe it's just manna night after night, but God, you are providing for us. Remind us of that, Father, we pray in your name. Amen.